Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very happy to be joined by my friend, Greg Potter. He was last on the podcast, I think maybe eight months ago. Um, Greg, if you don't know, has a PhD focused on sleep, diet, and metabolism, um, and how to manipulate lifestyle to get better results from our training. And I've been fortunate enough to catch up with Greg a few times for, well, I've had a coffee once and uh, Greg most of the time hasn't. So that tells you a little bit about how he takes care of his kind of caffeine use and sleep and everything. But uh, first of all, I guess, Greg, what's new with you? Is there anything you want to share with the audience before we dig into some kind of sleep? What's new with me? A few things. I suppose the one thing that's relevant to this discussion is that I do now have a website. I was saying to you beforehand, which is gregpotterphd.com. So I'll mention that as a shameless plug to kick things off. And it's very rudimentary, but hopefully I'll add some useful content to it in the weeks to come. And otherwise, various things are new with respect to my work, but I won't bore people with the details for the time being. But also it's Valentine's Day. So Steve, I'm very happy to be spending it here with you today. (laughs) thank you so much Um, have you got any special plans later i actually said to my girlfriend i just think that it's consumerism run riot so we're not doing anything (laughs) for it we are going out for food but we would have been going out for food anyway but i i got her some flowers and a card about a week ago and just basically left a message saying valentine's day is bullshit (laughs) we shouldn't we shouldn't need this to remind us to be nice to each other. I'm 100% with you. So let's dig into what we're going to talk about. Well, first of all, was actually a question that was left on our previous podcast by Alex Harrison from Renaissance Periodization. He asked a really interesting question about kind of optimal dose of melatonin, saying how like starting at around 300 micrograms seems to be like the lower dose that people seem to kind of get something from. But a lot of supplements have three to five milligrams, which is quite a lot above that. And uh, yeah, he was kind of like, why is that the case? So I'd be really interested to hear what you think, Greg. Sure. So I mentioned 300 micrograms because there was a meta-analysis done in 2005 in which they looked at a bunch of different studies that looked at the effects of melatonin on sleep. And they concluded that you get a similar effect on sleep from 300 micrograms to substantially higher doses. And those effects include things like a pretty consistent reduction in sleep latency. So people fall asleep a bit faster. People might sleep slightly longer and their sleep might be slightly more efficient, such that they spend a greater proportion of the time in bed actually asleep. There have been subsequent meta-analyses done since then on primary insomnia and secondary insomnia. And secondary insomnia is basically difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early so people wake up too early or feeling like their sleep is not restorative despite having an adequate opportunity to sleep, or feeling like their daytime function is impaired by poor sleep, but that's in response to some other morbid condition. So maybe, for example, somebody's experiencing a lot of anxiety, and as a result of that, their sleep is disrupted. And some of those studies suggest that higher doses might be beneficial, but also they haven't really compared higher doses to very low doses. So we can't really make that conclusion. And then the work in primary insomnia has shown that it's also useful for that. It's also useful for certain circadian rhythm, sleep, wake disorders. So for people who struggle to get up in the morning and go to bed very late, therefore they restrict their sleep with alarm clocks and so on. And also people who have a free running sleep wake rhythm they have dysfunctional photoreceptors in the eyes and basically their biological clocks don't synchronize with the environmental clock each day so they spend a lot of their time feeling jet lagged effectively so melatonin is useful in those contexts too but to return to the question i think that if among people who don't have insomnia or other circadian rhythm disorders or other sleep disorders, 
a low dose can have similar effects to higher doses, then why take the higher dose? There are a few nuances to this. So for example, there's been some work looking at taking melatonin in relation to metabolic health. And when people take quite high doses of melatonin, so perhaps 10 milligrams, they might experience certain positive effects on various aspects of their cardiometabolic health. But that's among people who have poor cardiometabolic health to begin with. And I suspect that most people listening to this podcast don't fit that particular criterion. Now, with respect to the types of melatonin that you can take, one of the problems is that melatonin supplements bought over the counter vary a lot in terms of their quality. There was some work published within the last couple of years that looked at over-the-counter melatonin supplements and whether they met their label claims. And basically, some of the products had about 80% less melatonin than was on the label, and some had as much as about 470% more melatonin than was on the label. And that's a problem in that when you take the melatonin, you don't know exactly how much you're getting, and therefore it's difficult to work out the effect that it has on you and to adjust your dose accordingly. But one thing to mention is that melatonin has a very good safety profile, and I'm really not too concerned about any risk of toxicity or anything like that. And interestingly, unlike many sleep drugs that target other neuromodulators, so GABA, for example, melatonin use in the long term doesn't seem to lead to tolerance. So it's not as if if you take melatonin for a few weeks at a time, the effects of melatonin wane over time. So I'm not too concerned about that, but it's worth noting. And for that reason, I think people should look to get melatonin supplements that have been third-party tested. There's a great website called Consumer Lab, and they independently test products that they just take off the shelves or that manufacturers send to them to validate what's in them. And they have done that for some melatonin products. And the melatonin product that I recommend based on that analysis is the Life Extension 300 microgram product. And they also showed that the Swanson one milligram product is useful. So basically, if you just want to take melatonin to help you fall asleep at faster, maybe use the Life Extension 300 microgram product. If you want to take melatonin for jet lag, then one milligram is probably about the right dose. So I'd take the Swanson product. If you're struggling to sleep through the night, then you might want to take a timed release version of melatonin. The version that's been studied the most in the research is called Circadian which is patented by a company called Neurin Pharmaceuticals in Switzerland. And you'd have to get a prescription for that. But you can get over-the-counter time-release melatonin in the form of microactive melatonin. And I've used a product previously called RestWell, which is all one word with an E on the end of it, made by a company called Quality of Life. And they use the same dose, two milligrams, that's used in the Circadian product. And because it has a longer half-life, it tends to support sleep maintenance and it could do so slightly better than regular melatonin, which is metabolized quite quickly. But to my knowledge, a direct comparison between the two hasn't been done. So those are some of the factors to consider. But in general, I'd say if you want to try melatonin, just help you fall asleep slightly faster, life extension 300 micrograms. If you want to take it for jet lag, Swanson, one milligram. If you want to take it because you're having difficulty sleeping through the night, you can try RestWell, which contains two milligrams of slow-release melatonin. And otherwise, I wouldn't really take melatonin if you have cardiometabolic problems at the moment, but I think there is the potential for melatonin helping some people who have some of those problems. It hasn't been well studied. I actually did a study on that as part of my PhD, which hasn't been published because we had participant recruitment issues. So I'd say watch this space, but it is interesting in that melatonin synthesis is often worse in people who have certain health problems such as type 2 diabetes. And they also have abnormalities in their circadian rhythms in comparison to healthy people. So it could be that melatonin helps reset their clocks, improves their sleep, and thereby improves their cardiometabolic health. Long answer, but hopefully that's helpful. 
uh, incredible. Uh, I don't think I've had a more comprehensive kind of talk on melatonin in my life and I like literally sparks flying from my brain. Um, no, I love that. And something I first of all wanted to ask was in terms of taking the dosage for helping sleep onset, is that you said it would kind of metabolize quite quickly. Is that like 30 minutes before bed or when would you recommend that? Can you take it with other like food or does it have to be kind of taken fast or like relatively empty stomach? Does that impact it? Yeah, great question. So I would take it 30 minutes before your planned bedtime. I take it at a regular time from one day to the next if possible, because it does have that type of in-training or synchronizing effect on your body's clocks. And it probably is important to take it on a relatively empty stomach. The reason is that melatonin tends to influence how you metabolize glucose and in short if you ingest melatonin shortly after a bolus of glucose you will have a more exaggerated glycemic response to the bolus for a given amount of insulin that you kick out so melatonin seems to inhibit glucose stimulated insulin secretion and added up over time if you have routinely exaggerated glycemic responses to meals, then you would expect that to dispose you to prediabetes and then ultimately diabetes and various other comorbidities that move hand in hand with blood glucose dysregulation. So I would say half an hour before bedtime. And I generally suggest that people consume their final calorie containing item at least two hours before bedtime. The degree to which melatonin negatively affects glycemic responses to meals seems to be somewhat genotype dependent. There's a variant, a common variant, that is present in about a third of people, about 51% of people of Northern European ancestry, that will exaggerate the effects of melatonin on blood sugar responses to meals. And I'm not suggesting that people go out and get their 23andMe done to find out which melatonin receptor 1B genotype they have, but it's worth noting. And the influence of that on how physiological levels of melatonin, so the concentrations of melatonin which should be present in your blood without having taken a supplement, influence glycemic responses are relatively unknown and possibly pretty insignificant, frankly. But Marta Garrelly, who is a Spanish researcher, has done some work looking at the influence of that genotype on when people take melatonin as a supplement. And it does seem to actually quite dramatically potentiate that effect of melatonin on blood sugar responses to meals. So it certainly seems that melatonin could have a much stronger effect on blood sugar responses according to your genetics. Very interesting. I guess actually something we'll probably touch on later that kind of relates to chrononutrition as a whole of kind of not eating too late at night. And I guess that might be the melatonin kind of influence of kind of when we're more insulin sensitive and everything, but I won't dive too far into that. Something um, I was wondering was obviously, well, maybe we'll touch on it now um, in terms of obviously you said glucose as physique competitors often we're taking that kind of greek yogurt or occasion or something slower digesting before bed is that going to be less kind of worrisome because it's a protein source or does that change any of that dynamic well if it was greek yogurt then you'd have carbohydrate in it of course and interestingly dairy proteins are quite insulin tropic so you see this with whey protein for example we give somebody a bolus of whey protein and the pancreas will produce quite a strong insulin response. But that's not problematic. And if anything, if you give somebody a whey protein bolus before meals, their glycemic responses to the meals seem to be blunted. So I, I don't see that as being an issue. It's worth noting that there's a little bit of evidence showing that some milk peptides might beneficially affect sleep. And interestingly, there's been some work looking at comparing milk which is collected from cows during the nighttime when their melatonin levels are raised versus milk which is collected during the daytime 
And it's possible that because of the presence of more melatonin in the nighttime milk samples, that could positively affect people's sleep after ingesting that particular type of milk. So maybe it depends on when the milk that's used for the yogurt is collected from the cows. But I, I wouldn't worry too much about that stuff. And of course, a lot of this relates to muscle protein balance too. And if you're a physique competitor, then that's in large part determined by how much you can stimulate muscle protein synthesis at each dietary event. And it's more dependent on that than the degree to which you suppress muscle protein breakdown. And dairy proteins, of course, are very effective at stimulating muscle protein synthesis and whey protein is probably the most effective at doing so. So I would say dairy protein for your final meal is fine. Yogurt for your final meal is fine. I know that we'll touch on exercise timing later, but that's likely to nullify any concerns too if you exercise in the afternoon for example so if you are lactose tolerant and you otherwise are fine you'd like dairy and you don't have any issues digesting it or the proteins that are in it then i think it's an excellent choice before bedtime cool All and obviously right. luke, luke van loon's group has done a lot of work looking at pre-bed protein ingestion and its yeah. effects on recovery from exercise and the data haven't been entirely consistent, but it certainly won't hurt and it possibly could help. My gut feeling is that it will help. So mm. I'd say go for it. It's reminding me of like the old wives tale of like eating cheese before bed causes bad nightmares or something. <laughs> yeah. You've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, cheese mares. <laughs> and I, I think everyone will experience the effects of their nutrition on their sleep. And it's a really difficult thing to study. People have looked at lots of different foods in relation to sleep. And we won't go into these, but they include things like kiwi fruits, tart cherries, tart cherry juice, beef, tomatoes, rice, all sorts of different things. And anecdotally, I think we all will have experienced the effects of certain foods on our sleep. For example, when I eat fatty pork, I have crazy dreams if i have pork belly for my final meal it always happens it's there without fail if i have white rice at the end of the day the next morning i feel great and it's likely that it affects my testosterone let's put it that way based on the symptoms that i have <laughs> so I, I would just say that you always want to monitor your responses and this is true of melatonin actually i didn't mention this earlier but it did pop up in my mind as i was thinking about my response to your first question but when i discuss research i'm discussing the findings of these studies but there are always large differences between people with respect to how they respond to a given intervention so you might find for example that 300 micrograms for you of melatonin doesn't have an obvious effect on your sleep but maybe you then titrate your dose upwards and you go to one milligram think, ah, oh, well, that seemed to help a bit. And then you increase it again to three milligrams and that helps a bit more. And then you try five milligrams and you, you don't notice a difference. So based on that, it's always important to monitor your responses to these things and preferably do so while keeping all other variables constant. Fantastic. So I know for your Valentine's dinner tonight, you're going to go out and get pork, fatty pork. Fatty, sorry, <laughs> I just, I was just pulling those two together. Um, well, so, we're, go, we're, go, we're going for curry, so I've got the rice. Oh. In there. So if I get, <laughs> if I get that, and then a nice fatty pork curry. Yeah. You're set. Uh, so yeah, I was wondering. Obviously, supplementation is generally like the last port of call, and I think you've yeah. not probably intentionally, but made melatonin sound quite promising and people might be listening to this be like oh, i need to take melatonin like year round do you think it's something like if your sleep is already pretty decent or kind of how would you practically apply that to someone is it like when they have issues that's when you would apply it rather than just like a year round yeah to be honest i would rarely default to using melatonin if people have sleep issues i i always start with other behavioral means of helping people sleep and i won't go into the details of these now but there are other things which I think are far more potent in improving people's sleep. What are the use cases for melatonin in which I regularly recommend it? The most obvious is jet lag. So one milligram of melatonin 
timed according to the timing of your biological clock and the time zone to which you're traveling and where you are in terms of your adjustment to that time zone. There's a website called jetlagrooster.com, which you can use to guide the best time at which to take melatonin. It's not always appropriate to take melatonin, but I would say start by using that to inform your use of melatonin during those instances. Otherwise, there are certain instances in which I think it might be indicated. So for example, as people age, they often synthesize substantially less melatonin. And taking that type of time-release melatonin might be smart for elderly people who are experiencing quite fragmented sleep. They find themselves waking up regularly during the night. But I wouldn't take it year-round. It's difficult to give hard and fast guidelines as to how long I would recommend taking it for. But if I was going to pluck a number out of thin air, which I am, I would say probably cap your use at 12 weeks or so. I don't know why I say 12 weeks. It's hilarious. When you look at scientific research, it's the same thing with training. As you know, Steve, there are certain numbers which you just can't avoid. So if if you're looking at a training study, it has to be a multiple of four weeks. The training study is four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 36 weeks. You never see a training study which has a seven week intervention. And it's, it's the true. same thing. It's the same thing with reps in the gym. How, how often, Steve, do you find yourself prescribing five sets of seven? <laughs> yeah, very rarely. As, <laughs> as, as opposed to four sets of eight to 12. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> cool. So I think actually that question for me was really well covered. Um, really enjoyed your answer there. So we'll jump into the next one, which is to do with caffeine for sleep versus kind of caffeine for performance. And we spoke off air about how I think previously on the podcast, you've recommended capping your kind of dose at two milligrams per kilo for kind of best sleep and also timing, like not taking it too late in the day was also recommended. Whereas Mm. a lot of the research on kind of caffeine for performance has seen benefits from three to five milligrams, which is where the biggest kind of performance kick has been three to five milligrams per kilo, sorry, kind of as a pre-workout dose. And Mm -hmm. I just wondered what you as someone who is interested in both sleep and performance kind of mm. what your practical guidelines might be in such a scenario. Yeah. And as I mentioned to you before, I, I haven't spent any time looking at the research on this in anticipation of this conversation, but I'll just shoot from the hip anyway. So first I would say save caffeine for when you need it. It's not something that I would recommend consuming every day necessarily. And those instances when you need it would be things like supporting certain aspects of cognition, especially if you're short on sleep. It would be things like if you're driving, supporting your wakefulness, if you're feeling sleepy, but also if you are an athlete, then it could be supporting your performance. So I'll focus on performance and the best time which to take caffeine seems to typically be about 60 minutes pre-exercise. The best time does depend on the form of caffeine that you consume. People typically consume caffeine in the form of coffee or tea, but of course you can take caffeine supplements, which might have a slightly shorter half-life typically. You can also consume caffeinated gum, which has a yet shorter half-life because it's basically taken up in the mouth as opposed to needing to go through lower levels of the digestive system. But that's not commonly consumed. It's just something that is very useful in certain instances, especially supporting vigilance if somebody's very short on sleep. So you mentioned that the dose that's used in sports nutrition is typically three to five or three to six milligrams per kilo. And those doses do seem to be most ergogenic. There's some evidence that lower doses are also ergogenic. It probably depends on things like the type of exercise, but also very much depends on the individual and the individual's responses to a given dose of caffeine. In general, caffeine, of course, seems to be more ergogenic for endurance exercise than for strength and power exercise, but higher doses of caffeine do support performance during strength and power exercise. For example, people might be slightly stronger, particularly in the upper body. People might be able to move loads slightly faster in the gym. Resistance training volume for a given session might be slightly higher as a result after consuming caffeine. 
But of course, the, the trade-off is the trade-off between the acute effects of caffeine on performance and your ability to recover from that caffeine. And as we might get to later, it seems that the best time of day at which to do strength to power exercise is probably in the, in the late biological afternoon, which might be something like 6 p.m. for most people. And I wouldn't recommend consuming six milligrams of caffeine at 5 p.m. If, <laughs> if that's what you're doing. So there's a consideration there. And what I would say is it really depends on your goals. So if you are a strength athlete who is competing in powerlifting competition and your sole goal is to put up the biggest total that you can, then three to six milligrams of caffeine an hour before the start of the event, or perhaps you, you take three milligrams of caffeine at a half hour before the start of the event, given that there's going to be a break between the individual lifts and then an additional three milligrams of caffeine, let's say after the squat, that, that might be a smart way to go for you. But if your focus is also on sleeping well, you're probably listening to this. If you have some issues with your sleep, then you might benefit from going a period of time without taking any caffeine because another factor is that the effects of caffeine on certain outcomes might wane with continued use. It's not entirely clear whether that's the case mm -hmm. with exercise, but it's definitely a consideration. I mentioned earlier the importance of variation between people and people differ dramatically with respect to their responses to caffeine. People have different concentrations of adenosine receptors. Caffeine antagonizes all of the subtypes of adenosine receptors, A1, A2A, A2B, A3. And the density of those receptors is going to differ in different tissues. The isoforms that people have of a certain enzyme in the liver will also influence their responses to caffeine, the half-life of caffeine and so on. The half-life of caffeine differs dramatically between people. On average, it might be something like six hours, but at the low end, it might be a couple of hours. At the high end, some people might have a half-life of over 24 hours if they have certain liver pathologies, for example. So you need to try to understand your own responses. But then also, I think you mentioned before we hit record, Steve, that it's difficult to actually estimate how much you're consuming if you're consuming it in foods. There are websites which are useful to that end, such as Caffeine Informer. And you can go there and find out more about typical caffeine concentrations in different foods. But just within a type of food, they do differ dramatically. I mentioned Consumer Lab earlier. They've got a section on chocolate, for example. And if you look at the caffeine concentration in different sources of coca, it varies widely. And the same is true of a related compound called theobromine, which is another methylxanthine that might be a weak stimulant. Hasn't been very well studied, though. So that's definitely another factor. And then with respect to sleep, what I'll say is that the work that's looked at that type of dose of caffeine in relation to sleep has consistently shown that even consumed relatively early, it will influence sleep architecture. So for example, there's one study that looked at the effects of consuming a fixed dose of caffeine, either immediately before bed, three hours before bed or six hours before bed. And regardless of the time of day at which it was consumed, all of those doses of caffeine negatively influence sleep. So they tend to delay sleep onset, for example, but also because it antagonizes those adenosine receptors, caffeine will tend to reduce the intensity of the deeper stage of sleep, which is important to the recovery of various different tissues in your body. So for example, connective tissue, because that's the stage of sleep in which our body synthesizes the most growth hormone. Growth hormone is particularly important to remodeling tendons and so on. So the trade-off is between your performance and your sleep. You might benefit from going a period of time withholding your caffeine intake and then using it intermittently and, and trying to consume things that you actually know the caffeine 
concentration or quantity of to gauge your response over time. And I think that just about summarizes my thoughts on it. Lovely. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that as I've learned more about sleep and caffeine, it's I've thought about and something, I don't know, I just, I'll throw it past you, Greg, to see what you think and it might provide some value to the listeners as long as you mm. don't completely think it's a lot of rubbish is I, I tend to have most of the time like a low dose of caffeine, which is just one coffee a day. And then I try and not have anything with substantial caffeine in for the rest of the day. I might have like some cocoa powder or like a piece of chocolate, but nothing with anything substantial, at least hopefully none of that stuff has anything substantial. And mm. then when I get to like an overreaching week, for example, or like a week before a deload, that's when if I feel like I kind of would perform better from it, I might include a pre-workout product on mm. those kind of weeks. And then the next week is a deload. So I come right back down and kind of recycle back to at most one coffee a day and then that's how i tend to kind of somewhat have a periodized approach to it where at least i've got kind of similar to the training kind of like i'm overreaching i'm putting my body through more than it can handle so i'm getting yeah. less sleep and everything than i can handle so hopefully the deload week kind of helps recover that somewhat yeah so i'll mention a few things in relation to that so one is there are certain things that you can can consume with caffeine that will take the edge off it potentially. So for example, it's common for people who are interested in nootropics to consume caffeine with L-theanine, which is a non-dietary amino acid that's present in green tea. And typically they would consume maybe one to two parts of L-theanine per part of caffeine. So if, for example, you consume 300 milligrams of caffeine, you might consume 300, 600 milligrams of L-theanine. And Caffeine seems to improve things like reaction time and attention, but it can impair accuracy in certain tasks. I'm speaking about cognition now. And if you take L-theanine concurrently, then you still get the benefits on things like attention, but you can potentially circumvent the negative effects of caffeine on accuracy. And the other thing is that L-theanine tends to reduce any jittery, promoting effects of caffeine. So you might want to experiment with taking L-theanine. There's been a little bit of work, a single study looking at L-theanine and sleep in a clinical population suggesting that it could be beneficial too. So I'd say consuming L-theanine at the same time is plausibly helpful. Hasn't really been looked at in the context of exercise. Can't think of a good reason why it would negatively affect the positive effects of caffeine on exercise. So that's one consideration. You mentioned using caffeine during periods of overreaching. During overreaching, people typically sleep slightly less and also experience disrupted sleep. Their sleep efficiency will be lower during overreaching. There's been some nice work showing that in recent years. And you can take caffeine to support your performance during that type of sleep disruption, but you likely will be amplifying that sleep disruption, which raises the question of whether it's sensical to take something to support your sleep in addition to the caffeine at that time. I think that might be, again, to my knowledge, it hasn't really been looked at. Mm. There hasn't been that much work looking at things like melatonin use in relation to exercise. We can think of a single study that looked at late night exercise in healthy young people and basically reported that if people undergo very strenuous exercise very late in the day and then consume melatonin afterwards, then the melatonin can support restorative sleep afterwards, which makes sense. So it could be for you, Steve, for example, that during overreaching periods or maybe late in your contest prep when your sleep is fragmenting anyway, that taking things to support your sleep will benefit your sleep. And the appropriate compounds to take will likely depend on your... on on your biology, on some of your phenotypes. So for example, if you experience lots of anxiety, then maybe that indicates one sleep supplement, maybe it indicates lavender or another supplement, which isn't really something that's been studied in relation to sleep, but which theoretically could support sleep like ashwagandha, which would also support testosterone production at that time potentially. So that's something else to consider. And then one more thing that I'll mention is creatine because Whereas caffeine antagonizes the adenosine receptors and thereby interferes with getting restorative sleep, 
creating boosts, creating phosphate stores. And people generally think of this in relation to skeletal muscle, exercise performance, adaptation to resistance training. If people consume three to five grams of creatine per day for many weeks at a time, then they'll top off their intramuscular phosphocreatine stores, which will thereby boost their performance, especially during high intensity intermittent type exercise. Now, interestingly, creatine will also boost phosphocreatine stores in the brain specifically. And what that means is that the brain can recycle ATP more efficiently if you're consuming creatine. And therefore, the speed at which adenosine accumulates in the brain with prolonged wakefulness will be slower if you're supplementing creatine, which means that because adenosine normally agonizes those adenosine receptors to promote sleep, you have less adenosine to agonize those receptors, which might basically make you less sleepy. This hasn't been studied in humans, which I find frustrating. It's been looked at in rats, but when you give rats creatine in their chow, creatine monohydrate in their chow for several weeks, they sleep less, they have less deep sleep. The intensity of their deep sleep is lower. And therefore, it could be that taking caffeine and creatine concurrently would have a double whammy negative effect on your sleep. So rather than consuming caffeine during that overreaching period, you probably already consumed creatine. But if you weren't already, I would instead consume creatine because whereas when you consume caffeine, it negatively affects sleep and then your biology in pretty much every way that you can think of acutely. I'm talking about sleep specifically there, but it follows that if caffeine interrupts your sleep, then your interrupted sleep will negatively affect your cognition and your physical performance potentially. Creatine is quite different in that way. If you look at research on creatine and both athletic performance outcomes, but also health outcomes, then creatine seems to be good for pretty much everything. And I don't know if we spoke about this in our previous podcast, so I, I apologize if we did, but basically creatine seems to be good for mental health. It seems to be good for metabolic health. And of course, as I mentioned, it improves adaptations to various types of exercise and it could support things like endurance exercise too. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, there has been some work looking at the effects of creatine consumption during sleep disruption. Christian Cook did a nice study on it in 2011 in which he took quite high level rugby players and restricted their sleep and then had them take either creatine or caffeine pre a series of tests. So passing tests, for example, as a measure of a sport specific skill and basically both creatine and caffeine overcame the negative effects of sleep loss on performance in that skill. But whereas caffeine would increase the production of various stress related hormones, Creatine doesn't have that effect. If anything, creatine might slightly support testosterone synthesis. And there's also been some work looking at the effects of creatine consumption during sleep loss on things like mood and executive function, which is the ability to plan, carry out, and monitor performance in tasks that are directed at achieving a specific goal. And creatine seems to positively affect all of those things. So if there's one thing that I was going to suggest that people take during those times when they're really, really working hard, whether physically or mentally, and maybe not getting as much sleep as they would like, I would say take creatine at those times. And there's been some work just to have one more thought, looking at concurrent consumption of caffeine and creatine. And some people thought that creatine might offset some of the positive effects of caffeine. It doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. But as I suggested, there's reason to think that the two have additive effects on certain things, specifically on signaling through adenosine receptors. So quite a long-winded answer again, but basically during those periods of time when you're working really hard, it might be that taking something to support your sleep, depending on your particular sleep phenotype, is a good idea. Caffeine consumption, I'm sure, can support your ability to perform in the gym at that time, as can creatine. If I was going to pick one of them, I would probably take a higher dose of creatine than normal as opposed to taking caffeine. And that could be a time at which it's, it's, it's useful to take melatonin actually. So I can just out of thin air, but if, if somebody took something like 0.5 to one gram of creatine for every 10 kilos of body mass. So for you, Steve, let's say that you're hundred kilos, which I, I know you're not at the moment, but let's say that you are, 
that might be five to 10 grams of creatine. Take it with breakfast because creatine might have some weak alertness promoting effects. And then in the evening, if you're struggling to sleep through the night during those overreaching periods, then maybe taking a time-release melatonin supplement, such as that Respol supplement I mentioned earlier, could support your ability to get restorative sleep and avoid you succumbing to that negative effect of overreaching on sleep continuity. Really interesting. And something I, I want to pick at just quickly is because often, at least for the majority of the listeners, I think we'll just be taking the three to five milligram, uh, sorry, grams of creatine monohydrate just a day as like a, a normal dose. Yeah. And often people say, well, no, it's kind of common knowledge that it would be, you saturate your stores. So it's not like it has an acute response. It has a kind of chronic response having the creatine stores. But you mentioned there some potential acute responses. So I just wanted to make sure I clarified that because I think a lot of the listeners have kind of come to that conclusion beforehand, but it sounds like there maybe are some acute ones. Yeah. So honestly, I, I don't know if that is the case. I think that if there are acute effects, they're probably quite small. And therefore, you would need quite a well-powered study to just be able to identify those effects. And that's likely the issue that's at play. With these things, it's rarely the case that there's some sort of inflection point at which something just happens. More often, it's something that slowly builds over time. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's going to be a question of trying to identify your own response to things, recognizing that these responses will likely be mild, but my guess is that creatine acutely has some, some weak alertness promoting effects in people. And at the same time, you mentioned that it, it typically takes at lower doses of creatine a few weeks to saturate stores, at least in the muscles, but likely in the brain too. Well, it, it could be that creatine in the short term, as it's accumulating in muscles, is having some small effects it's just that those effects are maximized when muscle phosphocreatine stores are maxed out so Very basically I, I i don't know mm-hmm. but but my, my guess is that it does have some short-term effects it's just the question of the resolution of the measures that have been taken so far and the power of the studies that have tried to identify the time at which effects kick in in the same way that people used to think that skeletal muscle accrual in response to exercise is something that only happened after several weeks. Mm -hmm. With the advent of some higher resolution measures of muscle protein balance, it became apparent that those change in muscle protein balance are occurring pretty much immediately, depending on the nature of the exercise. If you're doing really strenuous exercise, which both induces a strong stimulation of muscle protein synthesis, but also skeletal muscle protein breakdown, then maybe the net effect of that is negligible in the short term. But then as your body adapts and you get the repeat about effect and the effects of muscle protein breakdown and nullified, you then realize the increase in muscle mass from that resistance training. If you do other types of exercise that don't have such effects on muscle protein breakdown, but still stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So for example, high frequency, low, low blood flow resistance exercise, there was some work done years ago by a guy called, it was by Per Agard's group, which showed that people gained a lot of muscle in a short period of time through doing very high frequency, low load blood flow resistance exercise. And it's thought that that type of exercise doesn't do that much, doesn't incur that much exercise induced muscle damage. So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but I just think that it's, it's going to be a question of the quality of the measurements that are taken. And my guess is that it's having effects in the short term and that those effects are accruing over time into something which is only measurable currently several weeks into the intervention. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. In a summary sort of way, uh, if I was going to really like try and summarize it really easily for the listeners, creatine is potentially having somewhat of a negative at, like aspect on our sleep down the line potentially because of the interaction with adenosine, which I've heard is kind of called sleep pressure. So it's kind of 
we're not getting as much of that sleep pressure which could, could cause us not to sleep as well but it has so many other benefits versus caffeine which is definitely having a negative effect on our sleep if we have too much without all of the other positive effects so if we're going to take one of those certainly siding with creatine over caffeine and then in that overreaching period potentially actually just rather than siding with caffeine going for maybe increasing your creatine monohydrate intake for that weekend with the slow dose uh, melato- uh, slow release melatonin at night as well yeah i think so so basically if, if there's a period of time in which your sleep is unavoidably disrupted creatine might help support your health and performance during that time and if that's the case if you're experiencing that type of scenario in which your sleep is poor then maybe that's the time at which you take certain things to support your sleep but i would still say first and foremost it's really important to engage in all of those healthy sleep promoting behaviors which i'm sure you've discussed many times previously on your podcast i think we had we went into them quite yeah, a lot the first time yeah. i don't think we touched on the creatine though but we have when we've met up before you've talked to me about it so i'm really glad i actually came up on the podcast because it's definitely interesting for the listeners to hear and i think we've probably got to a good segue to talk about exercise timing so i know this is something you're quite passionate about but maybe isn't actually discussed much at all within well we haven't discussed it on the podcast i don't think once so that tells you and there's however many episodes now on the podcast and hours of people to listen to and it's never negligence steve negligence (laughs) so i mean we've talked very briefly about like splitting your sessions up in the morning and then the evening but this Mm. specifically has never come up and you mentioned previously that unfortunately the best time to train is straight after work 6 p.m when the gym is the most busy so uh, let's let's dive into kind of yeah what why that might be the case okay so first the best time of day which to exercise depends on the type of exercise that you're doing and the goals of that exercise so for example the best time of day which you do endurance exercise if you're an endurance athlete if you're listening to this you're probably not seems to be quite dependent on the person and it's not entirely consistent between people but the effect is there so for example if you were to take measures of your maximal endurance exercise performance so if you did a vo2 max test on a series of consecutive days at different times of your biological day then the difference between the peak and the trough would be quite substantial and it would likely be something like twice as large as the difference between your performance from one day to the next so your biological clock probably does have quite a strong effect on your endurance performance but it's difficult to say whether you're likely to perform best in the morning or the afternoon with respect to strength and power performance the with respect to the best time of day at which to train if you're interested in improving your strength and power performance, most people seem to be quite similar in that the best time of day to train is when core body temperature is highest, which typically is in the late biological afternoon, maybe 4 to 8 p.m. It depends on whether you're a very early bird. If you're a very early bird, then maybe it's 1 to 5 p.m., If you're a real night owl, then maybe it's 7 to 11 p.m., something like that. But that's when core body temperature is highest, and that likely explains a lot of the variation in performance. The difference between maximal performance at lowest core body temperature and highest core body temperature is something like 8%, depending on the specific strength metric that you look at. And it therefore is understandable why if you look at most world records, they occur in the early evening, historically. So there is that consideration, but of course, all of this is entirely dependent on somebody's lifestyle. And what I mean there is that if you can only get to the gym first thing before work, then I would never say, don't go to the gym before work. And if you train in the morning, then what's likely to happen is the difference between your lowest performance of the day and highest performance of the day will be substantially smaller as a result of training in the morning. So the effects of your training will be greatest on your performance 
at the time of day at which you regularly train. And this is relevant to competing in specific events too. So if, for example, you are a powerlifter and you have to fly many time zones to the east for a particular event, which is really important to you. So you'd be competing at a very early time of day. Then it will make sense to shift your training time to that time of day in advance of going out to that particular place, because then you're basically teaching your musculoskeletal system to be best prepared for that time of day. And one thing to mention here is that if you train in the morning, then you might benefit from having a longer warm up because your core body temperature will be lower. And when your core body temperature increases, various positive things happen. So for example, your nerves, which signal to your muscles will conduct electrical signals a bit faster. Various enzymes that are involved in providing your muscles with energy will work slightly faster at higher temperatures. The synovial fluid that lubricates your joints will be less viscous at higher temperatures. So all of those things will come together to improve your performance if you can just raise your core body temperature a bit more. So that's another consideration. But then also, one thing that's worth noting is that much of the research that's looked on the effects of time of day on performance does so in isolation. And I don't know if this has been looked at in relation to strength and power exercise, but certainly if you look at endurance exercise performance, and if you pre-fatigue somebody with a cognitively demanding task, their performance in the subsequent endurance bout will be impaired if it's maximal. Similarly, if you've spent all day at work in front of the computer doing work that has a very high cognitive load, then it's plausible to me that your performance in that subsequent exercise bout might not be quite so high. So maybe it's possible that in that instance, training before work might actually be a good thing for your adaptations to the exercise, provided that you have an adequate warm-up. I'm just using that as an example of some of the subtleties that are at play. To mention a couple of specific studies, maybe the person who's looked at this most rigorously is Keho Hakinen. I don't know if I'm butchering his first name. Steve, you're probably familiar with some of his research. He's a Scandinavian sports scientist mm. who's done tons of research over several decades, much of which is exceptionally high quality. He is a big deal in the world of sports science. And he did a series of maybe three studies between 2007 and 2017, looking at the effects or the interaction of time of day of training and the sequence in which people perform exercises within a session. So a couple of these studies, for example, looked at concurrent training. And to summarize the studies, when people do their strength and power training in the late afternoon, as opposed to the morning, over a period of several weeks, if anything, they might gain slightly more muscle as opposed to if they train in the morning. With respect to endurance exercise, if they do the endurance exercise first, regardless of time of day, then they might improve their endurance exercise performance slightly more. With respect to strength exercise, if they do their strength and power exercise first before the endurance training, then that might have positive effects on their strength and power adaptations to the exercise. So basically, if you were doing concurrent training and wanted to emphasize your strength training adaptations, then it would be best to do the strength and power training first within the session and to do the session in the sort of late afternoon time. But that's concurrent training. I assume that that also applies to resistance training in isolation. And I can't think of any good reasons why that wouldn't be the case. So hopefully that, that summarizes much of that research. There are a couple more things to mention potentially. So one would be that if you are going through strength training and, and you've lost some sleep the previous evening for whatever reason, your strength and power training in the afternoon because you want to capitalize on that time of day effect, then having a nap around lunchtime could offset the negative effects of the sleep loss on your performance. Ben Edwards, who's a Liverpool John Moores Uni, did some nice work showing that a few years ago, basically showing that a lunchtime nap will improve strength and power 
in resistance exercises, which are the types of exercises that most of the listeners will be doing after insufficient sleep, such that their performance is the same as if they had had a full night of sleep the night before. So that's one strategy that can be useful. And I, th I think that's, that's probably about all the information that people need. The only other thing to mention is just that if people do strength and power training very late in the day, then because that type of exercise will increase their core body temperature and also because it is a stressor, of course, so your body will kick out a lot of adrenal hormones, for example, in response to that exercise bout, that could interfere with your subsequent sleep. So I wouldn't want that bout of exercise to be too close to your bedtime. There was a meta-analysis published on this a couple of years ago, which basically reported that doing a bout of exercise within four hours or so of bedtime didn't really have any effects on sleep architecture. But a lot of the exercise bouts that were included in that particular study were moderate intensity, cyclical endurance exercise, the one study that was included that looked at running, which is more damaging than cycling, suggested that it might interfere with subsequent sleep. My guess is that doing very high intensity exercise, especially given the context in which it's done. So if you're training in gym in which there's lots of loud noise and bright lights and so on, doing that too late at night will likely interfere with your sleep. So I'd, I'd probably want people to finish that type of exercise at least three hours before their planned bedtime. But if there's a sweet spot, then it's probably in the sort of three to six hours pre-bed time period, the strength and power exercise on average. And I'm sorry, this is such a long answer, but just to add one more level of nuance to this answer, Steve, you mentioned earlier that you often train twice a day. And that raises the question of, well, if I'm training the same body part, both of those occasions, should I therefore save the heaviest stuff for the second bout? And I don't think that you should necessarily. I think you should just have a longer warm-up prior to the first bout. Do the heavier session first when you're fresher and then probably look to try and top up your muscle glycogen stores between sessions, consume plenty of food between sessions, and then do some lighter stuff in the subsequent session. And if you do that over a period of time, then your body will quickly get used to doing the heavier stuff first anyway. So I, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. With that said, if you were doing two sessions a day, but you're training different body parts at each session and the light session was really quite light. So Steve, let's just say that you were training your carbs at one of the sessions and at the other session you were training your back. You could probably do your calf session first. Let's say that you did that at 10 AM in the morning and you had a relatively typical sleep pattern. So let's say that you wake up at 7am, you can probably train your, your calves at 10am, wouldn't be taxing at all really. And then you could be back in the gym in the afternoon at 4pm, 5pm, train your back hard then. I would probably order things in that way in that instance. Really, really interesting. And it's, it's funny you brought up my own training and those particular times because that's literally the time of day <laughs> that I train. So I do do the the big compounds in the, the morning and then the lighter things in the evening. And typically it is muscle groups that are going to have been used in both. So like back and then later it's like biceps rather than calves and abs are thrown in the mix because they need a lot of work and they can recover and take a lot of damage. So uh, really interesting though, because I guess for me actually, I split my legs. So I do like quads and then hamstrings or hamstrings and quads. And typically mm. I think of the day that I'm emphasizing like quads, I do my big quad movements and then later it's like leg curls and some accessory movements so in fact i could flip flop those potentially well um, and see. potentially but but i'm guessing that your lighter hamstring movements are going to be things like leg curls possibly things like back extensions too but let's just say it's leg curls and then your heavier quad movements are probably going to be squat variations and if that's the case then of course your hamstrings contribute to hip extension so they are still used in squats to varying degrees according to the type of squat you're doing but given that i'm not sure that i would recommend doing the hams the light hamstring work first before the heavier quad stuff because your hamstrings would still be relatively heavily taxed by some of the heavier quad movements probably not as taxed as some people 
would historically have thought. I know a few years ago, for example, the West Side guys were talking about the importance of hamstrings to the squat, and I just don't think that's the case. I think if anything, the squat is is basically a, a quad and an adductor exercise. But in that particular instance, I think it probably would make sense to do the the light hamstring stuff at the second workout and the heavier quad stuff at the first workout. If it was calves and quads, then maybe calves first. But I I don't know. I'd, I'd I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that necessarily. But again, if it was biceps and quads, then I would say do the, do the biceps first and then, and then do the heavy quad second. But if we're talking about legs, then things are probably a little bit tricky in the same way that if you were talking about doing hamstrings and back in the same day, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing light hamstrings first and then heavy back second. If in the back session you were doing deadlifts and bent over rows or penley rows or that type of thing cool no very interesting i think the thing i want the, the listeners to take home is you talked about how the body gets kind of used to just like we know well a lot of the listeners be kind of familiar of it the body's used to eating at certain times like waking and sleeping at certain times so they're listening to this they're probably aware of that and you mentioned the body gets familiar with when it trains so it kind of whilst you might not theoretically be at your best at a particular time if you emphasize the warm-up you get your core body temperature up the body gets used to training at that time you can still see very effective progress yeah absolutely absolutely one thing to mention actually just what is on my mind is that if somebody's listening to this on the off chance that somebody's listening to this and they're really interested in improving certain aspects of their metabolic health so i'm specifically thinking about blood sugar regulation then the time of day might be important based on the very small body of literature that's currently available. So I'm thinking specifically of some work by Julene Zirath from a couple of years ago. She's at the Karolinska Institute. And she looked at adults who have type 2 diabetes who underwent high intensity intermittent cycling exercise. They basically cycled for one minute on and then one minute off three days a week for a period of two weeks. And she compared the effects of that exercise on blood sugar regulation using continuous glucose monitoring to get measures around the clock at two different times of day. So in one condition, it was done in the morning and in one condition, it was done in the afternoon. And interestingly, when people did it in the morning, their blood sugar regulation was actually slightly worse than it was pre-exercise. Whereas when they did it in the afternoon, it improved. Now, after doing it for a couple of weeks, it seemed that the morning exercise condition were returning to their sort of pre-exercise values. But the suggestion from that study was that counterintuitively doing that type of exercise in the morning in that particular clinical population was actually slightly detrimental to the outcome that they were most interested in. So maybe there are very rare instances in which exercise at a specific time of day might not actually be a good thing, but they would probably be very rare instances. And my guess is that given a sufficient period of time, people would adapt to it eventually, and then probably eventually experience some benefits from it too. And I'm loath to ever say that people shouldn't exercise. So I just wanted to add that as a caveat. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Greg, uh, we've just about come to an hour and we didn't actually get to the, the main topic that I had actually <laughs> in, in the first place to, decided to make this about. So we're going to have to get you back on at some point, I think. And I, I just want to say this has been a fantastic chat and I think lots of take-homes for the listeners. I want to say a massive thank you again. Definitely remind the listeners of your website because I know you said that at the start, but we can get it back in there. And um, if there's anywhere else you'd want to be kind of tracked down. Yeah, website is gregpotterphd.com. There's not much up there at the moment. And then Instagram and Twitter are at gregpotterphd. Gregpotterphd makes me sound like a bit of a loser as if the PhD is a big deal when it's not, but it's just because gregpotter.com was taken. And I don't want to pay the person who has that domain to get that to me. So gregpotterphd.com it is. I like the PhD. It's good. It's very important. Dr. Greg, it's, you could have called it got you, yourself Dr. You can, Greg. You can, you can pay for a PhD online. If, you, if you're like, is it Patrick Holford or is it, no, Gillian McKeith. 
she paid for a PhD. Oh god! So, so Steve, if I know what I'm doing to, after this, I was going to say if you're willing to fork out a couple of grand, then you can skip a few years of graduate oh, school. <laughs> Fantastic! Thank you so much, Greg, and thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.